So that's the pathway we'll be going on. But today we're looking at Jude, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 to 16. There's a lot here, kind of a long passage, so gear up. Let's read God's Word together. It says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Hear this, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. He says this in verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Here's the issue. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the, the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, he was contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he simply said this, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain, Balaam's heir, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harshings that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Verse 16, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is the word of the Lord. A little light reading for Sunday morning. <laughs> Who is Jude? Jude is, uh, according to church history, we believe he is the half-brother of Jesus. And who is he addressing? He's addressing a specific church likely made up of Jewish Christians with a stern warning, as we see here. Although this letter is, we know, to a specific church in a specific time, we know Paul's instructions to his 
disciple Timothy that God's word is useful for teaching across the span of time, and this message is still incredibly relevant to our present-day church here united under Christ. And we may ask this question, what in the world is the church? I want to establish this first. What is the church? Uh, when he, Paul, the Apostle Paul gives us a definition of the church. Uh, there's a lot of passages that are not going to be in your notes this morning, so I'm just going to uh, quote it to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. He gives us kind of a working definition of the church. He says this, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He says this, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, so they're teaching Christ Jesus himself being what? The cornerstone. So we get this picture of a house being built in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into this, into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's kind of a working definition of the church in relation to, at that time, this would have been this new community, this new covenant community of believers coming together in relationship to this new community of believers. Paul would later instruct uh, his disciple Timothy, a leader in the local church in 2 Timothy 1, 13 to 14, which I think is a relevant passage to what we're dealing with here in Jude. He says this, follow the pattern of, hear this, the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that you are in Christ Jesus. Hear this, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. This is Paul's instructions to Timothy. Hear this. This is so important. He says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What does he mean? Guard the truth. Guard the true saving faith of Jesus Christ. Faith through Christ alone is the thing that saves. And so coming back now to Jude, Jude's purpose in writing uh, to this particular church is similar to Paul's instruction to his disciple Timothy. That phrase, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, which brings us to our main idea. Our main idea is this. Hold fast to the one true faith and guard against false teaching. Hold fast to the one true faith and guard against false teaching. Now, I want to kind of set some parameters for the morning here. Because sometimes we can call something false teaching that's not necessarily false teaching. When I speak of false teaching, my intent is not to disregard differing opinions on Scripture. We can all have theological persuasions and, and doctrinal persuasions in our what Scripture teaches on what I would call secondary issues, not issues of salvation. So in church doctrine, we have primary issues, those that are we would call them closed-handed or make-or-break issues, Okay. But on secondary issues, we can somewhat passionately disagree and talk through those and sharpen each other and still love one another and fellowship with each other. And so that's not the the intent of Jude's uh, letter here. He is definitely addressing a false teaching or a number of false teachings that is going on in the local church that is leading people to sin. He says here, in, in a sensual way or a sexual way, that he's give the the false teachers are giving them license because they've perverted the grace of God. That's what's going on. We here at North Bullet Christian Church, I, I believe, are a diverse body. Okay, With lots of different backgrounds, different faith backgrounds. We're a, we're a diverse body, and let's let me just give you an illustration to talk about uh, this morning. 
we can have differing viewpoints. There's a lot of differing viewpoints on the end times, right? You ever gotten into a discussion on the end times? Gets passionate and excited. Uh, so there's a lot of different viewpoints on end times interpretation that are still what we would call orthodox and are still upheld in church history, okay? The major, okay, so the primary would be this. We, we must agree that Christ is coming back, right? We just sang a song about the glorious day when Christ will return. That's the major. Now, the way that those things work out uh, leading up to that point, those are the things that we can just kind of have some fun, passionate discussions about, uh, say, on Wednesday nights in, in small group Bible study or in community groups or something like that. Not things that lead to tension and division, but just good uh, chop it up kind of discussions on those types of issues. Like one, one thing that a lot of many people can disagree on is that say the thousand years in revelation, there can be different interpretations. Is that figurative or literal? And so I like to say sometimes like there's people that are pan millennial. You know what that means? It's all just going to pan out in the end. You get that? Like Jesus is coming back. Okay. Bad dad joke. I'm sorry. So that's not the false teaching. That, there's no false teaching there. If we agree that Christ is coming back, we can be united together for fellowship. Jude is addressing some very uh, specific issues that are going on in the church. And sometimes we can connect, well, you're teaching falsely on something that's a secondary or like a third tier issue. We want to be united on the primary doctrines and we can be diverse and engage in rich discussions underneath those things. So we're always united on the primary, secondary, third tier stuff. Let's just talk and chop it up and enjoy each other's company. And so those type of issues are not the aim of Jude's writing. His aim is to root out false teaching that leads to a disregard for the moral law of God in ordering our everyday lives. He, how do we know this? He says this in verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I love that he says that. I want to pause there because it's like, hey, I just wanted to talk about the gospel with you. I just wanted to talk about this treasure that we have found in salvation through Christ alone. But I have to address this issue that's going on in the church. So he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you, hear this word, to contend for the faith. That's why we had like boxing gloves as, as the picture or the graphic for our sermon series. Contend for the faith. We kind of get this idea that it's a battle. It's a fight to contend for the true faith. He says that was once for all delivered to the saints. We're contending for the faith. I want to confess to you, there's not a particular issue that comes to mind. It's like, I don't have some sort of agenda by picking out Jude to preach through. Actually, our discipleship director, Nate, challenged me, hey, why don't you pre uh, preach through Jude? I didn't want to do it, so I have to do it, right? You get like, so here we are in Jude. So there's not a particular issue. I don't have some sort of agenda that I'm trying to meet here, uh, but we want to work through. This is God's word. It's useful for teaching. We want it to sharpen us. And we must, as the local church, constantly be contending for the faith. Once for all, as Jude said, delivered to the saints. We are to, as Paul instructed Timothy, guard the great deposit entrusted to us. Why? Because the church in and of itself, especially in, in America, in Western culture, is incredibly countercultural. It's countercultural, and thus we must guard this, the infiltration of the negative moral aspects of our culture into the church. Uh, Israel's greatest issue was that they, were, they would 
be infiltrated by the surrounding nations and they would kind of take on the practices that, that they were carrying out, the sinful practices of the nations that surrounded them. And some of the issues with the church is that we allowed the, the negative moral aspects of culture to speak louder than the Word of God, where the Word of God speaks clearly. Many of Jude's illustrations are drawn from times when Israel prostituted themselves to the pressures of the surrounding civilizations and defamed the law of God. If we don't guard the deposit entrusted to us, we run the risk of false teaching coming into the local church, unaware of its presence and impact, especially with the emergence of these things. See, it may not be someone speaking from the platform that's falsely teaching. It may be the emergence of some guy talking on Facebook or a YouTube video that you're watching, or a podcast that you're listening to, if you're not walking in step with the Spirit and resting on the truth of the Word of God, you can be led astray by false teachers, even through those different uh, mediums that are floating around out in our society. We must guard the one true faith uh, that is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, this is what we're going to do this morning. First off, we're going to look at how Jude gives us ways, three ways of identifying false teachers. Okay, three ways of identifying false teacher. He gives us advice on rooting out false teaching and also speaks of, he talks a lot about the judgment of God on those who lead uh, the Lord's people astray. And so identifying factor number one is this. False teachers are sneaky. They're sneaky. Uh, in this passage, I'm not covering every verse. I just don't have time to do it this morning. So we're going to really focus in on verse 4 and verse 11. We're going to bounce uh, back and forth through that, through these next three points on identifying false teachers. Jude diagnoses the issue and then gives many examples or illustrations throughout the remainder of the letter to back his claims. We don't need to hit all of the illustrations he gives us. We can kind of get the idea just in these two verses. He says this, beginning part of four. He says, for certain people have, here. notice the language he uses, have crept in unnoticed, right? Sneaky. They, they've snuck in who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Jude uses some strong language here as we jump to verse 11. The first part, he says, woe to them. Okay, there, there's no uh, punctuation in, in Greek. In, in the English, we know that this is really an emphasized statement because we put an exclamation point at the end of it, right? Woe to them. And then he says this, for they walked in the way of Cain. Jude's going to use a lot of Old Testament allusions and illustrations to help kind of flesh out his idea and his instruction against false teaching. It's an interesting choice of language from Jude. And an interesting example from the Old Testament. Again, false teaching is sneaky. It sounds good to the ears. Okay? It kind of massages our heart that wants to follow after sinful ways. I'm like, oh, that's, I think that's a good idea. That's what false teaching does. It says somewhere in the Bible, right, that we'll, we want our ears to be tickled. That's what false teaching does. It is sneaky. When I read the word crept, it reminds me of just of sneakiness. And what's more, sneak, uh, more sneaky creature than a snake, right? We're kind of taken back to the garden when the serpent slipped in and deceived and, and snuck in there and dece- deceived Adam and Eve. Jude wants to talk about the common salvation that he shares with this church, but instead he must address the false teaching that has crept in unnoticed like a, like a sneaky snake. Um, I moved 
from Mount Washington towards Shepherdsville about two weeks ago. Uh, the Thursday before we moved, I'm out in the garage, and we have, I have this big, nice rack system that I bought from Menards up the road here, store all my totes with all my stuff in there, and I'm, I'm pulling totes off the bottom rack, and there's like a grid across the bottom, and I catch scales out of the corner of my eyes, like snake scales, and I jump back. My heart's pounding. And then when I kind of zeroed in on, on those snake scales, I noticed that it was just the, the skin, the shed skin from the, from the snake. And I'm like, I got to check this out now. So I start pulling the totes off because I got a 14-year-old son who loves this kind of stuff. I'm like, I got to get this out of there for Jordan. Like Jordan's going to freak out if he sees these things and be awesome. So I start pulling this snake skin out and eight feet later, I pull it out and line it up in, in the garage. And then I'm thinking, that sneaky snake, eight foot long, has been living in my garage. And I had no idea he was out there. I should have known because my dog food in the garage had mice were eaten into the corner of it. I discovered that one day. And then all of a sudden, the mice were gone, and I hadn't done anything to mitigate them. So at least uh, the snake took care of the the mice issue that I had out there, right? But he snuck in unaware. Jordan jokes, so my daughter just started driving. She's 17, and he goes, man, wouldn't it have been funny if she would have pulled in the garage with the, with the car and opened up and seen that snake slithering around there? Yeah, that would have been hilarious. Um, sneaky, just like that snake. Just un- I never knew it was in the garage. It may still be there. I don't know. I looked under the like, stairs that go up, like, under there. I have a big freezer out in the garage. Um, like when we lifted that thing up to move, I made somebody else look in the other side of it to make sure it wasn't sitting in there. We look even to this example. Uh, Jude uses this example of Cain. Uh, if you recall Cain back in uh, Genesis, he, he murdered his brother. Uh, and Jude uses the example of Cain and his distrust of God's word. God spoke directly to Cain. Uh, and, and distrust crept into his heart and affected the way that he lived. The Lord spoke directly to Cain and he said these words to him in Genesis 4, 7. He says, sin is crouching at the door. It's kind of a sneaky sounding word. Like someone, Why does someone crouch? Because they don't want to be seen. It's just sitting there. Crouching. He says, its desire is contrary. But you must, he, he, God gives him this instruction. You, you must rule over it crouching, creeping, sneaky. False teaching is sneaky. It sounds good to the ears, but if, if, if something is not tested to the Word of God and upheld by the clear instruction of Scripture, it must be, hear me family, it must be rooted out of the local church. It must be cleared out. What's our second identifying factor of false teaching? So false teaching is sneaky. The second thing, it's perverse. Okay, it perverts the word of God. Jude says as much here in the second part of verse 4, then we'll jump to the second part of verse 11. He says, ungodly people who what? Pervert the grace of God into sensuality and abandon them. Now go into verse 11 and it says, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. Okay, I'm going to talk about what Balaam's heir is in just a moment. The issue is now becoming clear, okay? So they haven't just crept in, but they're influencing God's people with this perversion of God's grace towards a sensual lifestyle. 
You see, family, we have, we have a beautiful gift from God called this, grace. Grace is a beautiful gift from God. But grace should never be abused as a license for sin. We don't say in our head, I'm just going to do this because God's going to forgive me anyways. If that's your attitude, God's Holy Spirit doesn't live in you. Because you're going against the Word of God. We don't take advantage of grace. We live in light of grace. And we're thankful for grace so that when we do fall short, we know we have that assurance that we can come back to the cross of Christ and our sins are forgiven. What does Jesus say? Seventy times seven. If you desire sin and you defend sinning in your life because of God's grace, you are perverting God's word. The false teachers uh, that had infiltrated this church, that had snuck in, pervert the grace of God into sensuality. It's the same thing that was occurring in God's people in Israel. There was prophets, there's one named here, Balaam, who was perverting God's word in conjunction with a king. His name was Balak. Okay, he was enlisted by this king. This is in Numbers 22 to 25. If you want to study this this week in your devotions, you'll understand a little bit more clearly what Jude is talking about here. But there is clear overtones of sexual sin evident in the lives of the false teachers and their instruction. Okay, hear this. I want to be clear. The word of God must not be used as a license for sin. But rather, it's used in this way. It's used to uncover sin And we then respond in this way, confession and repentance. I feel in the modern church, we've neglected those two words, confession and repentance, that we are to confess sin one to another, repent, meaning turn away. It's one of the things as we celebrated introducing new members that we do together, that we're confessing sin and we're repenting together as the body of Christ. Jude uses the example of uh, Balaam's heir. In the book of Numbers, uh, this prophet was summoned by a king, the king of the Moabites, to lead Israel astray from God. I'm not going to get into all the details of the story because we just don't have time to go through all those chapters this morning. But the main point is that eventually this, this prophet is able to lead Israel astray through enticing them into sexual sin with the Moabite women. That's what it says in Numbers 22 to 25. False teachers will do this. They will pervert the word of God in order, and oftentimes it may not be an outright license, but they will soften the commands of Scripture. Soften the clear commands of Scripture. This is the reason why, as a local church body, just this last year, we added a statement uh, to, uh, to our doctrinal statement on marriage and sexuality. We put this into our doctrinal statement. It's a, this was... Uh, uh, voted on by our church members, they said, yes, we want to adopt this language. It says this, we believe that the marriage relationship has been established by God as a union between this one man and one woman, according to Genesis 2.24 and Ephesians 5.31, in accordance with the scripture, sexual intimacy and sexual activity is appropriate only within the marriage relationship between one husband and one wife. 1 Corinthians 7.2 and Hebrews 13.4. We believe, hear these words, we believe that God has created two distinct and complementary genders, male and female, and each person is created in accordance with God's perfect design according to Genesis 1.27 and Matthew 19.4. Those are the clear teachings of Scripture. 
And we want to make sure that we uphold those clear teachings as a local body of Christ. Does this mean, here, I want you to hear me. Does this mean we elevate certain sins above others? No. Everybody, wherever you are, whatever you're going through, is welcome to walk through our doors, to sit in the seats in here at North Bullet Christian Church, and to hear the gospel proclaimed. No one will be turned away from every walk of life. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come through the doors to hear of the preaching of the word. Come just as you are, broken and hurting, and come and hear the gospel of Jesus. Lastly, we identify false teachers because oftentimes they are arrogant and prideful. They're, they think they know more than Jesus. That's an arrogant stance, isn't it? They're prideful. It says this, the last part of verse 4, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want to pause there. Think of the weight of those words. This is Jude, okay? Jude, we believe, is the brother of Jesus. Now, for those of you in the room who have siblings, I have two older siblings. Would you ever refer to your sibling as Master and Lord? Probably not. Jude has been so radically transformed by the gospel. This was a man that at one time thought that Jesus was nuts. He thought that he was crazy. And here, he's writing to the church, and he's saying, Jesus is my half-brother, master and Lord of my life. What a humble position. I think anybody who has, who's, has a sibling would understand that position. I'm not, I'm not giving you that title. So we see the opposite of arrogance and pride in Jude, and he humbly saying, my brother is the Christ, is the Savior, is Master, is Lord. What an arrogant position for these false teachers who think they know better than Jesus. How do we say that? Because these are the words of Christ, all of them, not just the words in red. Because they're inspired by God himself. It says, and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. It says, and perished in Korah's rebellion. Okay, what in the world is Korah's rebellion? Just a second, I'll get there, okay? They're arrogant because they deny their master, Jesus. This is the, the false teachers. How do they deny them? By disregarding the clear teachings of his word, by disregarding his lordship and his uh, being master over them. And this is illustrated later on in Jude's Old Testament allusion to Korah's rebellion. Uh, Korah rebelled against Moses. If you go back to the book of Numbers again, read Numbers 16, you'll read about Korah's rebellion. Korah disregarded God's chosen leader, Moses. He raised up hundreds against the leadership of Moses. Because Korah, what? He allowed pride and arrogance to drive his heart. And that's the heart of every false teacher is that they believe that they are more authoritative than the word of God itself. He stood, this man Korah stood against God's sure leader, Moses. Jesus, or Jude will later say in verse 10, but these people blaspheme. What does that mean? They, they speak irreverently all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They just disregard what the clear instruction of the Word of God is. So we have three identifying factors of false teachers. They're sneaky, they pervert the Word of God, and are prideful or arrogant. 
And so now Jude offers warning to his readers of this, of of the harsh judgment of God that awaits those who go against the clear teachings of his word. Those who lead others astray, hear this, will be severely dealt with by God unless they repent and follow after Jesus. It brings us to our second point, who we worship. We worship family, a powerful judge. Okay, when Jesus returns, he's coming in judgment. That's what the Bible teaches us says this, there's most of this section in Jude deals with judgment. I'm not going to read all of that section. You can go back and read it again for yourself, but there's one section in particular I want to read, verses 14 to 15. It says this, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, quote, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to, hear these words, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's a whole lot of ungodliness there, isn't it? So it, God is going to return in judgment over ungodliness and there's few things uh, that compare to the ungodliness of leading the Lord's people astray with false teaching. We don't need to dwell on this point too long. The passage is clear. God does not allow false teaching and the leading of his people astray to go unnoticed. There will be judgment, harsh judgment for those who falsely proclaim the word of God and lead his church away from the one true faith. So what do we do now? What do we do with this? Some practical steps in your everyday life that I hope will, will help you as you navigate through dealing with maybe false teaching you're hearing or, or dealing with uh, something in your life where you're like, is this sinful or not? You know, when I did youth ministry for a, a few years, and one of the top questions I always got from high schoolers is like, is this sin? Is this sin? And sometimes we wrestle with that. As we get older, we kind of hold those questions in because we don't want to embarrass ourselves. But high schoolers are great at like, hey, is this sin or not? So we might be wrestling with that, that question this morning. Again, we're going to get super practical. How do we discern false teaching that leads to, as Jude addressed here, sensuality and sin from true faith and the practice of our faith? And so we may uh, face two questions this morning internally, two questions that, that come to mind after we've identified marks of false teachers. How do I know they are teaching falsely? That's the question I might ask. Or how do I know if an action I'm taking is sinful. Uh, This passage says sensual, but not all sin is sensual, but maybe just something I'm doing that's not lining up with the word of God, wrestling with those uh, two questions. And so we're going to have four points on that. Trust me, I will get you out of here on time for lunch. I'm not going to take my normal time for four points. Okay. We'll go through them quickly. Some people are like, Hey, you take as long as you want. Thank you, Patty, for sharing that head nod with me. All right. So the first one, clarity. Okay. So as we ask these two questions, what was, what was our two questions again? How do I know they're teaching falsely? Like the content of what they're teaching is, is false. Or how do I know if an action I'm taking is sinful or not? Clarity. Here's, here's the simple truth. Search the scriptures where the Bible is clear about a sin or a teaching. Be clear. It's pretty simple. The Bible says this is sinful and, or this isn't sinful. We're going to follow what scripture teaches. How do we know that? Or where do we begin? I would say a great starting point would be something that we neglect often is the Ten Commandments. 
gives us clear moral parameters in our life. If we look to the Ten Commandments, we have basically our relationship with God covered and our relationship with everybody else covered. Both those categories. If we begin with the Ten Commandments, uh, begin with what is clearly held or taught in Scripture. So there's passages in Scripture that are very, very clear. Uh, we call them vice list. Okay, Paul has vice list in some of his uh, writings. Galatians 5.19 is one of those. You can turn there if you want. I'll just read it to you. He says this, now, now the works of the flesh, so he's meaning these are sinful things, are evident. This is what he lists. Here, this is very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. What's idolatry? Putting anything in the place of God and worshiping that thing. Sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Anybody drive in here? (laughs) Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you as I warned you before. Hear hear this warning that those who do such things, and I want to say those who do such things without just, I just keep doing it and I never feel the stirring of the spirit when I'm carrying these things out. That's what I mean. That those who do such things, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, there, there's an emerging trend. This is the warning that I have, family. There's an emerging trend, especially, I believe, in the Western church of what I would call interpretive gymnastics around some of these lists, where we try to figure out a way to, well, I want to say that that thing's okay, and so I'm going to go back to the Greek, and I'm going to twist that word around and go back and say, well, that word doesn't really mean what everybody for 2,000 years has said it means. And so now, for some reason, in 2022, we finally figured out what the true meaning of that word is. Baloney. We don't need to use interpretive gymnastics with with the handling of these things, the clear instruction and commands of Scripture. Where Scripture is clear, we need to be clear. Okay, the second thing. Guidance, where the Bible is silent, seek guidance. There are things that Scripture doesn't tell you directly to do or not do. We need to use guidance in our life in those. If we're honest, there are things in the Christian life which the Bible is silent on. And sometimes, oftentimes, these can be the areas where the church has had the loudest voice on, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't do that. We can make matters of conscience. These are usually where the Bible is silent. It's a matter of conscience and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. We make a matter of conscience an external test of authentic faith. Really, that's what the Pharisees did. They, they took the beautiful law of God and they added a bunch of stuff to it. Because they didn't want you to do this. I mean, I think their intent when they started out was good because... We don't want people to break the law of God. So we're going to say, and don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't. Do. And by the time they were done, it's like you're all the way over here against that wall trying to not do this thing here. When we add rules to the clear teachings of Scripture in an effort to guard against sin, we, those are legalisms. Now, I want to say this. In some instances, these are wise rules. Sometimes we need boundaries and fences Uh, to keep us away from something that may be a vice in our heart, but not a vice for somebody else. 
And so what do we do in these issues? I'm not going to give you one because I'll, man, I will fall into a pit and I'll have a million different opinions on that. So I'm not giving you whatever the fill in the blank thing is where you know that scripture is silent on that thing. Fill in that blank there. There's a lot of them. Okay, I'll do one. <laughs> should, I, should I watch this on TV or not? That's a simple one, right? Should I, should I be watching this or not? Okay, the, the Bible doesn't tell me whether I should watch Everybody Loves Raymond or not. See, that's my nighttime show before I go to bed. No, does anybody like Everybody Loves Raymond? Okay, good. And you guys all looked at me like you'd never heard of it before. <clears throat> so easy one, not going to get me in too much trouble there. Um, what do we do? So I said guidance. Where the, where the Bible is silent, seek guidance. Here's three things that you can do. Okay? One, seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You have a powerful, powerful thing within you. God's Holy Spirit is indwelling you. Pray, seek the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Number two, our conscience actually is a good indicator if something is sinful to us or not. Paul speaks of that in two, I believe, of his letters. Where If your conscience has a check about something, then you probably shouldn't do it. Number three, where the Bible is silent, seek guidance. Number three, go talk to a more mature believer, a more seasoned believer. Hey, what do you think about this thing? I'm, I di- haven't really heard clearly from the Spirit. My conscience is kind of back and forth. What do you think about this thing? That's why you have family. That's why you have church family. Talk through these things with them. Where the Bible is silent, seek guidance. Uh, third one, wisdom. Wisdom. <clears throat> Where action can cause another to stumble, use wisdom. Okay, where action can cause another to stumble, use wisdom. So we've asked two questions. Okay, in the first section, is there a clear prohibition in Scripture? So what does Scripture teach on this particular issue? Okay, if if it's not clear in Scripture, we've sought guidance through the indwelling Spirit, our internal conscience, and mature believers. Now we come to a place like, okay, I've feel like I can do this thing or think this thing. We come to the place of causing another to stumble in what we would call our freedom or liberty in Christ. Where our actions can cause another to stumble, we need to seek the wisdom of the Word of God. And what's amazing is the Bible talks about it. It brings us to, I want to say this, the clear teaching of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 18, 6. He says this, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, we could say stumble there, I believe that's okay. It would be better for him, hear this, to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea, right? Meek and mild Jesus. Paul gives us wisdom also. I believe he does in Romans, but I'm going to... uh, Talk about 1 Corinthians 8 is a chapter where he's instructing the church on food that's been sacrificed to idols. Uh, he gives us this wisdom in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 12 to 13. He says, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their, hear this word, conscience, when it is weak, he says this, you sin against Christ. Therefore, He's using food, again, as an example here, but I think this is applicable to a lot of different categories that we could insert the blank on. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, Paul gets extreme here. He says, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Do you see the heart of Paul here? 
Okay, we get to the heart of the law right here. Love God, love others. Paul loves others so much that he's saying, hey, in my freedom, I could do this thing, but I I would never want to make you stumble, so I'm not going to do that in front of you. It's love for your neighbor right there. Lastly, here's the last thing. What do we do? We have to come back around to Jesus. We remember. Jude begins this letter giving us, he calls us three things. He said, we're called. This, these are beautiful words. We're called. Okay, he said, I say loved on there. He says, beloved. We're the beloved of God, the father, he says, and we're kept. We're held on to by Christ. We need to remember these things. It says this in verses one to two, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are, here it is, Christian, if you have faith in Jesus, these are you. It says you are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Those are amazing things, but it gets even better. Listen to these things. Jude says this, may, hear these things, may mercy, peace, and love be added to you a little bit. No, wait. Given a little bit more. Wait a second. Be, oh, multiplied. Isn't that amazing language right there? May mercy, peace, and love be not just added to you. When I add things together, they increase on a much slower level, don't they? When I multiply things, boom, 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 boom. It's bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, larger and larger and larger. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied in you. That is great news today, family. How is it multiplied? Because going back to this, Jude talks about Jesus. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. I want you to hear this good news here today. This is what Jesus did for you. God, in in his eternal plan, he, he knew that humanity would fall away and in his providence provided a way of escape through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came about 2,000 years ago. He took on human flesh and he walked on earth and Jesus lived perfectly. He perfectly obeyed the law. He perfectly obeyed the will of his father unto death. Jesus willingly went to the cross and he gave up his life for his beloved. We are called and kept by him. Jesus shed his blood. He was the perfect lamb of God who who shed his blood to cover our sin, that those who will place their faith and trust in the work of Christ are called these things. They're called, they're beloved, they're kept, so that, as Jude says here, mercy, peace, and love may be multiplied to you that we don't have to be perfect because we have the perfect righteousness of Christ. Where we fall short, we can confess and we can repent and we know that Jesus, that God is is able to forgive us, is willing to forgive us, loves to forgive us our sins so that mercy, peace, and love may be multiplied to you. Amen.